All right, so most of you here know me already, but in case there's a few here who haven't met me before, hi, good morning, and welcome to this place. We're so glad you're here. My name is Katie, and what you really need to know about me is that I would call myself, a little self-disclosure here, a hopeless dreamer. You know how they call some people hopeless romantics? They say it when they refer to the kind of people that never ever give up on the pursuit of love, even at crazy cost and self-sacrifice? <laughs> well, I wouldn't call myself that exactly. But what I would call myself is a hopeless dreamer. You see, I'm the kind of people that never gives up on dreaming up a new normal. In fact, my close friends and my family, my mom and my grandma are here this morning, have been calling me this phrase ever since I was an itty-bitty baby. Stubborn as a mule. I like to think that I inherited that from my daddy and his Irish background, evidenced by this great Irish chin I have. My husband says I don't have one, but I swear to you I have one. I see it in the mirror every time I look in the mirror. But I actually think it goes beyond that. You see, I don't think I inherited this stubborn gene necessarily from my daddy with his great Irish blood, but it is in my genetics. I believe that I inherited it from my father in heaven who sent his son Jesus to make all things new, both here and now and in the age to come. And so I am a hopeless dreamer whose head and heart and knees will always be positioned toward the pursuit of all things being made new. And here's why you need to know this self-disclosure this morning, this chief motive, this compelling desire, this dream that causes me to go great lengths and incur crazy cost and self-sacrifice, it is not unique to me. It belongs to all of us. It belongs to every member of the body of Christ, of the global church. It belongs to the stewards of the Great Commission, to the ambassadors of Jesus Christ, the waymaker himself who made a way for all people in all times and all places to know him, to have relationship with him, and to experience freedom in him. It is in our spiritual DNA collectively, not just mine, to be hopeless dreamers with unyielding and unwavering commitment to following in the footsteps of our Jesus who promises he is making all things new. So please go ahead and open up to the book of Genesis this morning. I'd like to start off in Genesis chapter 16. You can follow along on your smartphones, on your Bible apps with the Bibles in your pews. Or alternatively, you can just listen. It'll be up on the screen as well. Genesis chapter 16, starting at verse 1. Give you a second to get there. All right. Starting at verse 1, Genesis chapter 16 says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. 
We'll pause right there for a second. We're going to pick back up in a moment. So just so y'all know where we're at, this is the context. I'm sure you've heard the story of Abraham and Sarah before and their struggle with infertility. This isn't new information or a novel story for you in both the Christian and the Jewish faith. We consider Abraham to be our patriarch. It's where we get our understanding of genealogy and lineage and faith in Jesus Christ and what it means to follow God wholeheartedly to new places, to new lands. We get that all from Abraham. And so you've heard this story before, but here's what I want to challenge you to do today. What might be different for you is that often, I'm going to guess that when you've heard this story, like me, you've heard it through the the lens of both Abraham and Sarah, and we've just kind of swept Hagar under the rug. So I want to encourage you this morning that as we read through this scripture, would you listen to it through the lens of Hagar instead? Verse 2 of what we just read called Hagar, Sarai's Egyptian maidservant. Maidservant, at the time that this text was written, was another word for saying a female slave. It's also translated in other versions of the Bible to be the word handmaid, which might bring all kinds of negative connotations to your mind if you're familiar with the popular TV series, A Handmaid's Tale, which is taken kind of allegorically out of this passage of scripture that we're looking at today. If you're familiar with that TV series, then you've already been trained to have empathy with Hagar, with the females who are forced into slavery because of their fertility. But for many of us, we've read this story a million times about Abraham and Sarah and their infertility, and we've read it through the more dominant historically narrative of the fulfillment of promise to Abraham, and we've just left Hagar out. And here's what I think. I think it's important that we keep both narratives because God sees Abraham and he uses Abraham. He chooses Abraham. He loves Abraham and he fulfills his promise to Abraham to make his descendants more numerous than the stars. In the scripture we're going to look at today, Abraham messes up so hard. But even in that, God doesn't discard him. He doesn't throw him out. He doesn't disqualify him. Instead, God makes the situation right, and he even uses Abraham's mistakes for his glory. But here's the thing. Most of us are already familiar with that narrative, so I don't want to stay there for too long today. Instead, I'd rather we spend our time today, this morning, with the scripture from the perspective of Hagar, because I believe that Hagar's story is the story of a God who sees the vulnerable, chooses the vulnerable, and delivers the vulnerable. So let's go back to Genesis 16. It picks up at verse 4, saying this, When Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. So when Hagar got pregnant, she began to see herself beyond just a slave status. 
she began to see herself as an equal with Sarah. And so the text says in verse 4, she looked with contempt at Sarah, the woman who intended her to keep her in her place as a slave. But by doing that, Hagar actually broke with legal tradition. So scholars have said that when Sarah contended with Abram, saying, may the Lord judge between you and me, this is just as much on your shoulders as it is on mine, she was actually citing a judicial formula from within Hammurabi's code, which imposed a penalty on slaves who, once they became concubines, began to consider themselves as equal status with the legal wife. According to Hammurabi's code, the wife had the right to send that concubine back to slavery if this were to happen. So when Sarah begins to see her right as both wife and as mistress threatened, she used the law in her favor. And unfortunately, instead of siding with the marginalized, here comes one of Abraham's great mistakes. Abraham chose to obey Sarah and her jealousy and the law of their day. And with Abraham's consent, Sarah oppressed Hagar. Now, interestingly, the verb that is used here to say Sarah mistreated Hagar in verse 6 is actually the Hebrew verb jana, which is also used in the Exodus story just a few generations later to describe the exact same way that the Egyptians oppressed the Israelites. Do you guys notice we're six verses into the story or into the chapter that tells the story about Hagar, but we have yet to actually hear her voice? We've heard Abraham's and we've heard Sarah's, but we haven't heard Hagar's voice yet. That sounds about right for the voices of the oppressed throughout all of human history. But we're about to hear Hagar's voice in what becomes the first of two extraordinary encounters that Hagar has with God. Picking up at verse 7, the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now with child, and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. And then she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. 
Y'all, we have to pause for just a second right here because I need to know if you're hearing what I'm hearing in this passage. It feels like just in the last few years, this phrase, I see you, as a way to say, I understand you, I get you, I know what you're going through, has just come back into mainstream culture. And so all the times that I've read this passage before in my youth and in my school years, I feel like I missed out on the richness of this phrase. And I wonder if you have too. But this, just this year recently, when I reread this passage, I started to hear this phrase, I see you. You are the God who sees me. And it actually moved me to tears. Do you know that Hagar's story is one of the first recorded stories of terror against women in all of history? When we find Hagar in this passage, she is reeling from terror and depression, running away when the God of all of heaven and earth stops time and speaks to her. And she says this, you are the God who sees me. And he promises in return this promise, I will make your descendants too numerous to count. Do you know that that promise, the promise of a dynastic legacy, is only given in the entire Bible to Abraham, Moses, Jacob, Israel, and Hagar? That means that Hagar is the only woman to receive that promise. She's also the only one from outside of the camp of Israel as an Egyptian to receive that promise. And she's three times the other, a black foreigner, a woman, and a slave. Come on, somebody get excited with me in this house this morning because her response to this encounter and to this promise, goodness gracious, it moves me to actual tears. Her reply when God speaks to her over this promise, this hope for her future is, you are the God who sees me arrow to my heart for each one of us in the midst of our own sorrows and tragedies and the different kinds of oppressions that we still face god stops time time and he kneels down to each one of us and he says i see you i know you and i am with you so hagar gives birth to a beautiful boy named ishmael and he grows up in abraham's household And then, miraculously, just as God had promised, Sarah conceives. And God fulfills his promise to Abraham to give him a son in his old age to be the heir of his household named Isaac. And that's where scripture picks this story back up, so let's follow it there. Go ahead and flip forward to Genesis chapter 21, verses 8 through 20. Genesis chapter 21 verses 8 through 20. Scripture says, The child grew and was weaned. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son. For that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Do not be distressed about the boy and your maidservant. 
Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. But I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water, and he gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way, and she wandered in the desert of Beersheba. But when the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off, and she sat down nearby, about a bowshot away. For she thought, I cannot watch my boy die. And as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and she filled the skin with water, and she gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. And while he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. So just take this in for a second. Scholars estimate that Ishmael was likely a teenager when this scripture we just read took place. They estimate he was somewhere between 15 to 16 years old when all of a sudden Sarah began to view his his existence as a threat to that of her own son. And so she gets Abraham, again, to ally with her. And just as quickly as they made the decision to use and abuse Hagar's body as they saw fit, the decision was made again to discard of Hagar and her son. So Hagar wanders off to the desert. In other Bible translations, this is recorded as the wilderness. And if you're into reading the Bible, then you'll notice this pattern of the wilderness, that specific language as being a place or a pattern of places where God meets with his people in their suffering and their destitution. Did you know, though, that Hagar is canonically the very first person that God ever does that with? She is the first person in the full and total account of Scripture that will have a one-on-one encounter with the God of all of heaven and earth in in the wilderness in her suffering. It's a super interesting layer of irony and intentionality that God first came to the rescue of an Egyptian slave outcast by Abraham in the wilderness. And generations later, we go on to read in the book of Exodus that it's Abraham's descendants who will encounter God in the wilderness after being enslaved by the Egyptians. But that's another story for another day. Anyways, Hagar goes off into the wilderness with her son with just a skin of water and a little bit of food, and very quickly that runs out, and she begins to fear the worst, that her and her son are going to die from dehydration. And in the intensity of her grief, Hagar cannot bear to watch her son die, so she separates herself from him. She goes and she has him sit beneath a bush, and she goes somewhere else to die. And it's right there, in the intensity of her grief, that God comes to her rescue and speaks to her once more. And he does it in two ways in the scripture we just read. 
The first is he offers hope for the future. He reiterates to Hagar the promise that he is going to make a great nation out of her and her son. And the second, he offers help right now in the present. He opens her eyes to a well of water and she immediately gets a drink for her son and her and her son are no longer abandoned to the point of death, but they live. And the last sentence, verse 20, says that Ishmael became an archer and his mother got a wife for him. They point to more than just survival. Hagar and Ishmael thrived. So I made a disclosure to you here at the beginning of service that I am a hopeless dreamer and relentlessly committed to the pursuit of all things being made new, to the pursuit of shalom and wholeness in our world, and so are you as the body of Christ. Here comes another disclosure. We got some things that need made new in our community. Many of you are already involved in doing just that. You're rolling up your sleeves, you're wiping sweat from your brow, and you're spending your days partnering with our daddy in heaven, bringing wholeness and redemption to our homes, our churches, and our communities. But today, I want to share with you about another initiative that you've already heard from me once before. So consider this a recap if you've already heard this, but for some of you, this might be new news. We here at Conduit are pioneering an initiative called BRAVE, and we're bringing it local to our community because the heart of it is so similar to the heart that God had for Hagar in the scripture that we're looking at this morning. For those of you for whom this is new, BRAVE is a catalytic movement for girls that is just three years old as an organization, but that is already in 18 cities in the United States and five locations globally. It's a movement to empower girls who are vulnerable and overlooked and who are drifting in a current of oppression that seeks to enslave them in human trafficking. And we're bringing the movement local here to Jamestown because trafficking and the exploitation of our girls is happening here in Chautauqua County, too. Trafficking is one of those yucky and hard topics for the church to talk about because the system of it is so perverse. And part of that perverse nature, what it does is it makes the church want to stay silent on the topic because of its complexity and hardness. But the church, the global church and the local church, we cannot be willing to shrink back from hard conversations because if we do, we will remain permanently silent and as a consequence, we will shrink. Brave is a strategy to combat that. It's a strategy to unite local churches with the government um, agencies, the not-for-profit agencies, and the schools and their communities to say to girls, we see you, and you matter. We believe in you. You can do this, and we're with you. We are in your corner, and you can count on us. It was created with girls in the foster care system and the correctional systems in mind because national statistics show that 60 to 80 percent of survivors of human trafficking are coming out of those systems. And in New York State, as Jessica shared here a few weeks later, that statistic is even higher. 94 percent of our survivors of exploitation have had at least one report at some point in their life that something was wrong in their lives. They had at least one contact with the child welfare system. 
So brave is targeted toward girls that we know are at risk because statistics are showing us a pattern. But here's the truth. All girls are at risk. Ellen Duffield, a, re a research analyst, recently published a large study done in the United States that found that a girl's self-esteem peaks at just age nine. From that point forward, it declines the rest of her life. That means that our nine-year-old girls and all of their bright sparkliness and joy and purity and innovation and creativity will begin to lose their confidence and glittery nature nature as they hit puberty and begin to age. And as a mama of an almost eight-year-old girl, that destroys my heart to think that her confidence is almost as high right now as it will ever be in her entire life. So brave is for all girls, a catalytic movement to empower them in their identity, to exhort them to be brave and make hard, holy choices to give them great belonging in our community, and to give them hope for the future. And it begins in just two weeks with an empowerment conference that we are going to be putting on at the Willow Bay Theater on October 19th from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. The conference is going to feature music, dance, storytelling, different creative arts, different activities, block party, and a keynote speaker that is coming in from New York City. Our latest registration numbers indicate that we're going to be expecting approximately 400 girls and their caregivers at this event. Yeah, we need some applause for that because only God, 400 girls, and it's the first time we've ever done it. We've partnered with the Child Advocacy Program, the Sheriff's Department, GA Services, Probation, the County, Chautauqua Striders, Liberty Partnerships Program, the YWCA, and so many local churches, local businesses, and local individuals to make this happen. It will be a dynamic day that will be followed by Brave Circles, a follow-up program in schools, not-for-profits, and churches to keep growing in connection and empowerment of young girls throughout our county. So many of you are already part of this initiative. You've given your time to us, you've given your talent to it, you've given your prayers, and you've given of your finances to see this become a reality, to see a breakthrough on behalf of our girls. But if you're just hearing of this for the first time, I want to invite you to see Jessica at the Welcome Center immediately following service so that you can learn more about how you can volunteer, how you can pray, how you can give toward this exciting movement. But here's the bottom line. Whether it's with Brave, or it's with Conduit, or whether it's with another local initiative, my friends, commit your hearts, your hands, and your knees toward the pursuit of all things being made new, to the pursuit of wholeness and shalom, and to stepping in for the oppressed. Hagar's story, the story of a young woman who was othered in three ways, gender, race, and class, has so much to teach us about oppression. And here's what we know. Just as the angel of the Lord stepped in with Hagar, we are called to step in with the oppressed, to offer hope for the future, just like the angel promised her that God would make a great nation out of her and her son, and help in the present. He directed her to a well of water and resourced her. My friend Danielle Strickland says it like this. Jesus always goes out of the way to get in the way 
of justice. Justice will never be accidental. It is always intentional. And we've got some rolling up of our sleeves to do. Now switch gears with me for a second here because I'm going to switch away from brave and pivot away from this idea of stepping in for the oppressed because Hagar's story is that. And dear God, I hope that these people will take that away today, but it's also something else more. And the Holy Spirit is speaking to me this morning that there are people in this room that need to hear about that something more. That God sees you. He sees all of who you are. He doesn't just see the things that you've polished for others to see. He doesn't see your accomplishments and titles, and he doesn't see you for the categories that the world fits you into by your gender, your class, your job, your age, your problem, or your addiction. He sees all of you in all of your complexity. He sees your failures. He sees your successes. He sees the child that he formed in the womb. He sees your circumstances, the things that have happened to you. He sees their personality, the way that he uniquely wired it. He sees your sin and the way it devastates your soul. And he sees your promise. Y'all are looking at a preacher this morning with a top knot in her hair, gold hoops, some leopard print jewelry, ripped jeans, and some boots that were made for walking. All right, and I say y'all with a southern twang, speak with an urban rhythm, whose favorite songs are from Shakira, who speaks Spanish in her home, in a home that's in Bemis Point with a white picket fence and two and a half kids. Oh, and that western New York A that we pronounce as fat, who's the daughter of an alcoholic who took his last drink an hour before he died, and who only three years later lost her own daughter tragically in her arms in the mission field. Oh, and have I told you about my own personal failures? Not the things that happened to me, but the things that I did to inflict harm on others and on myself. Y'all are looking at a preacher this morning who's known since she was a teenager that she was called to preach the gospel, but who opted for not-for-profit leadership instead because half of the world and half of Christianity still says that I can't do the thing that I'm wired for and the thing that bleeds passion in me and makes my bones come alive because of my gender. But God sees me. He sees me in all of my complexity and chaos and all of the layers. He sees the things that don't make sense to anyone else, not even to the man I'm married to, and on some days don't even make sense to me. He sees me, he knows me in all my ways, and he chooses me and he delivers me just like he did to Hagar. And friends, the same is true for you. He sees you with each one of the layers that is unique in your life, the circumstances you were born in, the way that he wired you, the things that have happened to you, the great successes you've had, the ways that you continue to fail and choose sin over his holiness. He sees it all. And this morning he's saying, let's have a wilderness moment. Come to me with the things that have happened to you, and I will give you hope for the future. And I'll resource you right now with help. Are y'all with me? Because there's somebody in this room that needs to hear this message this morning. The God of all of heaven sees you. He knows you. And he is with you. God's presence with us is the great mystery and great hope 
of every Christian in the church worldwide. Like I said, God stepped in with Hagar to give her hope for the future, which you have. You have great promise for the future. But he also resourced her in the now with a well of water. It says he opened her eyes and there was a well. Now it was there the whole time. It was there the whole time. She just didn't see it in the intensity of her grief and her sorrow. But it says, scripture says that he opened her eyes. And just like God gave Hagar drink to, th- to satisfy the thirst of her and Ishmael so that they could live, he offers you a drink as well in your hunger and your thirst. And it's living water. Water that will never run out. A well that will never dry up through the power of his Holy Spirit. Today we're going to partake in communion. There's theology and there's tradition behind why we do this. There's both remembrance and there's active presence. We believe in the active presence of Jesus in this beautiful symbolic act. Pastor Cameron, if he was here, because he makes a habit out of saying this here at Conduit, he would say that even with uh, with all the great theology of our best theologians for the last 2,000 years, we still haven't even tapped understanding the great mystery of the Lord's Supper and its richness. But we do know that his Holy Spirit is present in this act of remembrance that is for all people in all times and all places that thirst and hunger for Jesus Christ. So I'm going to go ahead and invite Todd Llewellyn up here. And together with me, we're all going to share in this beautiful act of remembrance. This is for all. You want an encounter with Jesus today? He offers it in his in his body, and in his blood. And as we participate in this act and remember him, there is a mystery that is unlocked in our souls. Please join me in prayer. Jesus, you see us. You see us individually. You know the ways that we've failed. You know the things that have happened to us. And you come to meet with us in our sorrow and in our grief. Father, I pray that today you would meet with your people, God. Would you speak out over this group of people? Would you speak out over all of us that you see us, that you know us, that you are with us, and there is hope for the future and help in the now. Thank you, Jesus, for offering your body and your blood to make a way for us for freedom. Father, I pray that as we participate now in the act of communion, that you would unlock something in our souls, Jesus, for our deliverance, so that we can pursue you wholly and fully, and not just live, but survive. Give us your living water, the Holy Spirit in us, to reach down deep into every crack and crevice of our bones that are dead and dry and bring us back to life. In your name we pray, amen. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're going to go ahead and serve the worship team first, and then Todd and I are going to come right down here to the front of the aisle. And you can come up. We're going to form two different lines. But I want to tell you this. First off, come. If you want to encounter Jesus, push your theology aside and come have an encounter with the living God. The second is this. This altar is going to be open because we know that God wants to meet with his people and he wants to bring us back to life. If you kneel at this altar, someone's going to come and pray with you. So please join us in the act of communion.